Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. 1 Corinthians uh, verses 17 through 34. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be fractions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way and let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why there are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give you instruction. I will give instruction about the other matters whenever I come. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jerry. All right, so here we are, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, I don't normally sit on a stool except for Q&A Sunday. So you know if I'm sitting on a stool, it's permission for you to ask questions um, is the story. Uh, so here we are in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, 1 Corinthians is an interesting book. 1 Corinthians is an interesting letter because there's just a ton of conflict happening in this church. If you don't know, Corinth is a port town. Uh, lots of people in and out, lots of... Uh, merchants, lots of sailors in and out, people from all kinds of different cultures. So as the church grows up, you've got a crazy clash of cultural groups and ethnic groups coming together in Corinth. And whenever you get people from radically different backgrounds together trying to do something together, there's going to be fighting. There's going to be issues. And so there are all kinds of problems in the Corinthian church. We have two letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in our Bible. We know there were more. In fact, he references another letter, what we call the angry letter, um, <laughs> which uh, Paul probably went a little over. He probably got a little sinful in that letter. He, I mean, he really tore into the Corinthians in that other letter, um, which is hard to imagine because he gets pretty harsh with them in First and Second Corinthians that we have in the Bible. And so here we have this group of people who are from all kinds of different backgrounds. And what happened is every single week when they would gather, they gather in a home. They didn't have big church buildings like this. The church existed in little home gatherings all over the place. And the head of the household would be kind of the head of the local church. Not a pastor as much as we think of it today, but the person who had authority and responsibility for the people who would gather in their home. And this person would be responsible for hosting, and they would have a meal together. It was called a love feast. You read about this in Jude verse 12. They would have love feasts together. Now, these were um, meals that people would do together. And in the course of that meal, the group of Christians that have gathered would take of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. 
And so that was one element of the meal that they would have together. And these were each week a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and a way to learn how to follow him. So that's what would happen weekly in Corinth. The problem is here in Corinth, you got people who are really poor and you got people who are really wealthy coming together and everybody's bringing their own food to this meal. They're not eating a common meal that's been prepared for them. Everybody brings their own stuff. So the poor people ain't got much and the rich people got too much and they're bringing their own wine and the rich people are getting a little tipsy. They're partying a little too hard. And they're not treating communion, they're not treating the Lord's Supper with the respect and the honor that it deserves. And in eating gluttonously in front of the poor people who don't have much, they are breaking God's law, they're breaking God's commands. Like they're disrespecting the poor people among them. They're not treating them like equals and like brothers and sisters. And so what should have been the most beautiful celebration of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus turns into this fractious partying where people are not taking the thing seriously. The poorer people are getting angry because the richer people are kind of putting it in their face that I got more than you. The richer people are getting drunk at these parties rather than celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so they're undermining the whole point of the gathering. They're undermining the entire point of getting together as God's people. And that is a problem. I mean, I don't know if you think it's a problem, but Paul thinks it's a problem. And so he addresses it right here in these verses that Terry read for us. So sometimes we read this and Paul says, therefore anyone who takes of the, of the, the blood and the bread, the blood and the flesh or the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner is drinking judgment upon themselves or bringing judgment upon themselves. Sometimes it's been taught and interpreted that that means if you're not totally pure of sin before you come to the table of Jesus, then you're drinking judgment upon yourself and it may very well lead to death. Because he says, this is why so many are sick among you and some have even fallen asleep. Now when Paul says fallen asleep, he means died. They died. So what he's saying is, The judgment of God has fallen on this community for taking communion in an unworthy manner, and some people are sick and have even died because of it. And some people have taught that if you don't come to the communion table totally pure of sin, completely cleansed, and you partake, you're partaking in an unworthy manner, and the judgment of God might fall on you. Now, that's not true. That's not at all what is being said here. What is being pointed out here are the inequities in the community and the way that these people are disrespecting the table of God. They're disrespecting the communion table by taking in an unworthy manner. That is, they're showing off their wealth. They're using this as an opportunity to build up their own names. Or they're taking in bitterness and anger because they've had people putting things in their face and they don't like that like any of us wouldn't. And so what Paul is saying here is respect the table. Respect the communion table. Understand what you're doing when you come and you partake of the body and the blood of Jesus. Really invest that with meaning. Otherwise, you're disrespecting the table, and that's where the judgment of God comes in. Because you're being hypocrites. You're saying, I follow Jesus, but then you're blaspheming him in coming to the table and treating it like an opportunity to build up your own self or to show off before other people. And it ain't about you. And it ain't about how great you are. And so the communion table in this instance was actually causing division. That's why Paul says toward the beginning of what Terry read, you think you're coming to the Lord's Supper, but you're not. You cannot rightly call what you are doing the Lord's Supper. This is a raucous, divisive meal that you're having together that is undermining the entire purpose of the church. And so you need to check your motivations. You need to check yourself before you ever come in. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what's happening. Now we read this because this is the longest teaching on the practice of communion and the Lord's Supper that there exists in the New Testament. We have the stories of Jesus at the Last Supper saying, this is my body, this is my blood, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this is really interesting because it's the longest section we have of teaching about the Lord's Supper and communion, and it's the earliest witness we have as to how the church did communion very, very early 
in its existence. And so we know that there was a meal every week. We know that the people came to the Lord's Supper. We know that this was meant to be a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and a commemoration of his death. And we know that it was causing division because the people weren't taking it seriously. Those are the things that we absolutely know from 1 Corinthians 11. Now, there are other places in the New Testament we can go to to learn about the Lord's Supper and the practice of it. But there are a couple things you need to know as we go into this Q&A time. If you're reading the New Testament and you read about breaking bread, very often that refers to the Lord's Supper or communion. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that the early Christians were together every single day, and we read that they were breaking bread together, and then we read later that they were having a meal together, and there seems to be a separation between the breaking of bread and the meal. That would indicate that the breaking of bread was the practice of communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and then the meal was something different from that. And they may have happened together, but the way that Luke, the writer, talks about it, it seems like these are different things that they're doing, right? They're breaking bread, and then they're doing it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, even, the Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, what about the bread that we break? Is it not Christ's body? This is his preliminary to the teaching that we've gotten here in chapter 11, where Paul is laying down the absolute importance of the Lord's Supper of taking communion together. So we know that in the early church, they were doing this weekly. We know that it was being abused. We know that it consisted of breaking bread and drinking wine. And we know that from the earliest days, Jesus' words that this is my body and this is my blood were used as a, it's called a formulary, but they were used as the words of institution, the words that you would say at the beginning when you partake together to remind people of what we're doing the body and blood of Jesus, and also to root us in the absolute weight of what that means, that this is the body and blood of Jesus we are partaking. It is not to be taken flippantly. It is not to be taken lightly. And it is not to be taken in a way that sows division among the followers of Jesus. And so that's where we are in in 1 Corinthians 11 um, with that teaching just anchoring us in the absolute centrality and importance of communion. Now, we're going to take questions on this, and through the questions, um, I'm going to try and be both informative and devotional um, so that we are pointed to Jesus in the answers. All right, how should people who are brand new to following Jesus think about communion? How do you know when you're ready? That's a great question. Um, Let me first lay down a definition of communion. I should have done that before I even read the question. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, or if you're from like a Catholic background, the Eucharist, or Episcopal background, Lutheran background, the Eucharist, um, is a practice that we do within the Christian church. Every Christian does it. Not everyone does it at the same frequency, with the same regularity. Some churches do it every month. Some churches do it twice a year. Some churches do it every week. Um, But every Christian does this. Um, it is a, it's a sacrament. We call it a sacrament here. You'll hear other churches call it an ordinance because it's something Jesus commanded us to do. And so it is an order of Jesus. It's an ordinance for the church. In other churches, you'll hear it referred to as a sacrament. Sacrament um, is a word that is kind of tricky to nail down. It actually comes from the Greek word mystery. The Greek word mysterion um, is what gets translated into Latin and then from Latin into English as sacrament. And a mystery in the classical sense, in the sense of that the Bible uses it, in the sense that we would use it, is something that we can only know if God reveals it to us. So there are lots of mysteries in the Christian faith. There are lots of mysteries about our faith that when, and when we say that, we don't mean some like, esoteric, mystical, magical thing out there, what we mean is something that we could not know unless God taught it to us or God showed it to us. So the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is a mystery. It's a mystery because only God could reveal to us the truth of the Trinity. Only God could share with us that reality. And it's still a mystery because we still don't know how it works. We just know it's true because God has taught it to us. In the same way, sacraments are mysteries. They're things that could only be revealed to us 
through God teaching us. And that's what the taking of communion is, the Eucharist is. It is a revelation from God. Jesus at the Last Supper, when he's breaking bread and drinking wine with his apostles, says to them, this is my body and this is my blood of the new covenant. Take and eat. That's something that only Jesus can command us to do. That's something only Jesus can share with us and reveal to us. The same is true of baptism. The fact is, and we, taught, we had a Q&A on baptism last July. The fact is, in baptism, we're not sure exactly what happens. It's more than just a symbol, but it's not some magical thing that makes you something new. God is at work in baptism in ways that we can't fully comprehend or articulate, and that makes it a mystery. And that's why communion and baptism are sacraments. They are mysteries of God that have been given to us by Jesus. The other element of a sacrament is that it is a sign and seal of God's grace toward us. So we partake, we participate in the sacraments as a sign and seal of the grace that God has given to us. Once in baptism, or if you're like me, maybe twice, and regularly in the practice of communion. And so when we take the elements, the bread and the juice or wine, as the body and blood of Jesus into ourselves, we are taking into ourselves in both a symbolic and a mysterious spiritual way the sacrifice of Jesus. We are reminding ourselves of the grace given to us through Jesus, and that's why it is a visible sign and seal. So the question here is, how should we think about communion, and how do you know when you're ready? Well, I hope that when we think about communion, we think about it in exactly that way. This is a sign and seal of the grace given to me through Jesus Christ, through his broken body and shed blood on the cross. And that's what it is. That, in fact, is why we don't have to be completely washed clean and pure before we come to the table. Because the table is what we call a means of grace. It is a way that God showers us with his grace and covers our sin. And so in the sacrament of communion, we are coming and we're taking into ourselves the means of grace, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that washes us clean. It's silly to think that we have to come to this table already pure and clean before we partake of the body and blood of Jesus that is the means of grace. Does that make sense? So the second thing is, how do you know when you're ready? Are you a follower of Jesus? And have you been baptized? That's, that's how you know you're ready. Are you a follower of Jesus, and have you been baptized? Now, some people will disagree with me on that second piece. They will say, you don't have to be baptized to be a follower of Jesus, therefore you can take communion. And that is totally cool. If that's your position, that's great. Biblically, I made this argument when we were talking about baptism in the Q&A. Biblically, in the New Testament, salvation and baptism are almost one thing. They are tied together irrevocably so that when we see someone come to faith in Jesus in the New Testament, they're almost always immediately baptized. The New Testament doesn't know anything about a follower of Jesus who is not baptized. And so while we say we are saved only by the work of Jesus, we are saved only by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus for us, and we don't have to be baptized. Jesus said to the guy on the cross next to him, you'll be with me in paradise, and he couldn't be baptized. Though that's true, if we have the opportunity before we die, we should be baptized as quickly as possible after committing ourselves to Jesus. And in our tradition, where we're coming from, it is typical to say, once you have been baptized, then you come to the table. Because the baptism, your baptism is your public profession of faith in Jesus, the Bible also doesn't know anything of a follower of Jesus who's just at home by themselves. It, nothing. It knows nothing about the follower of Jesus who is disconnected from a community of his followers. And so when we follow Jesus, we connect ourselves to a community of Jesus' followers and are baptized as a public profession of following him. And that is the point at which we say, now we come to the table. So here we ask have you been baptized? If you've been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're six years old or 62 years old, you're welcome to the table. Uh, now, let me clarify one more thing. Unless there is 
very serious reason to deny someone communion, and we'll get into that in a minute, unless there's very serious reason to deny someone communion, we will serve anybody who walks up here. And we're not going to ask your baptism status. We're not going to ask your salvation status. Right? If you have never been here before, and you walk up that center aisle, no elder standing up here is going to be like, um, excuse me, have you been baptized? And what was the date of your salvation? And can I get a certificate of that? Like, it's not going to happen, right? We're going to serve anybody who comes forward trusting that you understand and know what you're doing. Um, there are good reasons to deny communion. Um, that's another conversation we'll get into in a minute. Um, all right, here, oh gosh, okay, awesome. You got like five questions here. Does it turn into flesh and blood in my mouth? Why do people believe this? Um, so we don't believe that the bread and the cup are the literal body and blood of Jesus at this church. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, that is exactly what you believe. Um, so in the Roman Catholic Church, a priest will pray prayers of consecration over both the bread and the wine, always wine. And the moment that the bread and wine are consecrated, they become the literal body and blood of Jesus. So at the end of, a, of any mass, whatever wine and wafers you have left over must be consumed by the priests. They cannot be wasted because they are the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's called transubstantiation. The, the, it's the transformation of the elements into the literal body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. Um, we believe that these are symbolic, symbolically bread, uh, symbolically body and blood of Jesus, but that there's nothing holy about this particular loaf of bread or this particular cup of juice. We use juice here because we have a longstanding relationship with AA, um, and so we, use, we don't do alcohol in the building because of our relationship with AA, so we use juice. It's totally cool. Um, there's nothing particularly holy or special or magical about this loaf and this cup. What is holy is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in the act of taking communion. So the reason people believe that is because, the reason people believe it's the literal body and blood of Jesus is because of what Jesus said in the words of institution. This is my, this is my body, this is my blood. And theologians will say, who believe that, will say, the moment Jesus consecrates the body, the bread and the wine, they become his literal body and blood. And if we are saved by the literal body and blood of Jesus, then when we come to the table in communion, we need to take, we need to really participate in the death of Jesus by taking in his literal body and blood. Now, I am not a Catholic scholar. I am not a Roman. I didn't grow up in the Roman Catholic Church. I do not have the catechism memorized. So if at any point I am misrepresenting, please come and tell me. <laughs> I'm trying to be as broad as possible here. Um, and there's merit to that argument. There's merit to, man, if this is the literal body and blood of Jesus, how much weightier does it make this act that we do? How much more does it feel sacred? Um, but we, we believe that this is a symbolic thing. Um, there are those who would argue, as the question did, that it becomes the literal body and blood in your mouth. So it's not there sitting on the table, but as you partake of it, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. We also don't believe that either. We believe that there is a spiritual presence, that God is spiritually present in the act of partaking. Um, but once we are done here today, unless one of you wants to drink it, we will dump that juice and somebody's going to take that bread home and eat it with lunch. Okay? So they're not consecrated that way. Um, what are you supposed to think about during communion? Jesus. Jesus. Think about Jesus and your relationship to him. That's the entire purpose of communion, is to bind us together as Jesus followers and to draw our attention, our minds and our heart, elevate us to Jesus. And so when you're partaking of communion, my prayer is that your mind is on him, what he has done, who he is for you, and then, by implication, who you are to him. 
Uh, does it matter what you think about or do during communion, or is it simply the action? Yes and no is the answer. So we have a problem in American Protestantism where we don't like ritual. We don't like dead ritual. We don't like empty ritual. We don't like to do things just to do them. We have to infuse everything with meaning. And if there isn't a personal meaning to me while I'm doing something, there's no value in doing it. Now, that's overstating the case. I know not everybody feels that way. But that seems to be the general approach people have. I would suggest that there is value in taking communion even if you feel nothing that day. If you come up this line and you're having, you're stressed about something, you're frustrated about something, and you get to the front of the line and you just cannot clear your head and you still take of the body and blood of Jesus, you still take of communion, it is equally right and good for you to do so. There's one exception to that that we've never talked about here. And that is, if you've got beef with somebody, you shouldn't take communion. If you have any issue with a brother or sister in this room or outside of it that you can reconcile with and you've made no attempt to reconcile, and especially if you yourself are holding bitterness toward anyone, don't come and take communion. And I don't say that lightly. This comes from Jesus himself. Jesus says, when you're praying... If you remember that your brother has something against you, if you're bringing a sacrifice before God and you remember somebody has something against you and you've not attempted to reconcile with them, leave your gift and go reconcile before you bring your sacrifice, before you bring your offering. And in a sense, when we come to communion, we are bringing an offering of ourselves. And if we are in conflict, and if we are feeling bitterness toward, and if we've not attempted to reconcile with a brother or sister, we should probably hold back. Now again, this is not something I'm gonna police from up front, okay? You're not gonna get to the front of the line and I'm gonna be like, hey, have you had an argument this week you haven't reconciled? Well then go, right? That's not gonna happen. We're gonna leave that to your conscience, to your mind. But if we have conflict that is unresolved and especially if there's any bitterness living within us, we probably shouldn't come to the table. We should go and reconcile first as Jesus has told us to do so that we can come with a clear conscience. Not perfectly sinless, but a clear conscience. We have done what we can do. So when you come, there is value in taking it even if you feel nothing in the moment. The hope is, of course, that as we are drawn to Jesus and as our minds and our hearts are drawn to Jesus, we do feel, and we do know, and there is something that happens experientially for us as we partake, that this isn't just some ritual that we do that we don't even think about. The hope is that you do think about it. In conversations about whether to do communion weekly, oftentimes, because we, when I got here, we did it monthly, um, over the course of five years, we've moved to a weekly communion. And one of the arguments that I have made, um, and I could be wrong about this, correct me if I am, but one of the arguments I have made is that there's no other element of our service that we wonder, should we do it weekly? We don't ask, do I feel anything when I'm singing songs, so maybe we should only sing songs once a month. We don't ask, do I feel anything when someone's preaching, so maybe we should only do preaching once a month or quarterly. We do those things because they are marks of the church. We do those things because they're marks of belonging to Jesus. And communion is more a mark of belonging to Jesus than any of the other things that we do. And so that's been my argument, which has been, we don't ask if I feel anything when we do these other things that mark us out as followers of Jesus. And so I don't think that's our primary question when we talk about communion. We do this as a mark of belonging to one another and to Jesus. It's also one reason it's called communion. Think about the word community, uniting together. Right? That's when we do communion, we do it together. Um, there's no biblical precedent for taking communion by yourself. You always take it with other followers of Jesus as a mark of belonging to him together. We commune with God and we commune with each other in this practice. And it marks us out as his family. So any, any follow-up to that? <clears throat> All right.
right, okay. Um, what should a non-believer do at a communion service? That's a really great question. Um, there, are, on the one hand, um, so here's here's an interesting here's an interesting fact for you, and maybe you can hold on to this. I don't know. Um, in the earliest church, in the earliest years of the church, first couple hundred years, the community of Christ would gather, and they would um, have a meal. They'd hang out, and then they would dismiss everybody who didn't follow Jesus yet, and then they would take communion. So they would say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, honestly, this family meal is for us, and we don't want you to feel excluded, so you're free to go. And then they would partake together. Now, in our modern church services, we don't typically do that. Some churches will uh, put in their order of service or in their bulletin, like, prayers people can pray during communion. And so it's something to meditate on. Um, some churches will sing worship songs during the communion process so that people who are not followers of Jesus are have something to focus on or something to do. Um, you can read your Bible. You can play on your phone. I mean, no, don't do that because that feels disrespectful, right? Um, but if, a, if, if someone who's not a follower of Jesus is here during communion, um, we can offer resources. Um, ideally, what I would hope is that whatever we're doing would help people to consider themselves in light of Jesus. And that is one benefit. We don't do it here because we do communion in the middle of the service because that's how I've said we should do it. But one of the reasons people do communion at the end of a service is so that you can be meditating on whatever was said and done prior to that as the communion is happening. Um, And so particularly for a non-believer or for someone who's not a follower of Jesus, to have the message to reflect on and to think on, to have been pointed to Jesus through the words of the preacher and through the liturgy that has come before. And so hopefully you can point to Jesus that way. Um, How do we know communion is an ongoing command and not just a one-time command to the disciples? Um, Jesus said, as often as you do this, implying continue to do it. Um, That's what we read here in 1 Corinthians 11. When the Apostle Paul is reading the words of institution, he's getting these words from the other apostles because Paul wasn't there the night that Jesus was betrayed and during the Last Supper. So he's hearing from the other apostles, and they're saying, hey, Jesus told us to do this regularly. And so Paul is passing that instruction on to the churches. Do this regularly. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Now, there's one argument to be made that that was done during a Passover meal. And so what Jesus was saying was each Passover, in addition to the liturgy that you go through for Passover, you should also remember me because the Passover points to me. That's one argument. What overturns that argument is the fact that from the very earliest days of the church, we see this happening every week. Every celebration of the resurrection, Christians have been doing this from the very beginning of the church. It's only in the past five or 600 years that the practice of communion has spread beyond every other week and we've, we've decided to do it less often. For the first 1,500 years of the church, it would have been silly for you to suggest that the Eucharist was not observed on a weekly basis. Um, that was just how it was practiced for the longest time. Um, how can I ensure that my participation in the Lord's Supper is meaningful every time? and it doesn't become meaningless and merely routine. Um, That is partly on us and partly on you. So when I say partly on us, what I mean is, as a leader of the church, my role, my job, the purpose for you saying you want me to be your pastor is that I help point you to Jesus. And that the leadership of this church crafts things around our gathering to help you reflect on and connect to Jesus. And so that's our responsibility, is to ensure that everything we do is about Jesus above all things and that he is honored in everything that's done in this place. And that as that atmosphere is created, then your spirit is inclined toward Jesus. That's our responsibility. Now, it's your responsibility to engage with that. It's your responsibility to allow your gaze to be lifted to Jesus. It's it's your responsibility to meditate 
on Christ. That's why we give space for prayer. That's why we give space for confession. That's why we here at this church want to have a participatory service and not just one where you are entertained or where you're informed, but where you are participating. Because we think that that helps you to focus on Jesus and get into the right mind and heart. Now, the fact is, you're not going to feel something every time. Because we're human, right? It's like, it's like where we live, right? How many people move to Denver for the mountains? Anybody here move here because of the geography? Am I the only one? Seriously? You people are crazy. Um, <laughs> um, uh, some of you were born here, I know. And we're sorry, Harry, we are. Um, for us, not you. We're, we're happy for you. Um, so, so obviously we live in a place of captivating beauty. That's why we have this window that normally you can see the mountains through, right? Um, I've tried to control the lighting in here a little bit. Um, we live in a place of captivating beauty. And you first visit here, Harry, you wouldn't know this because you were born here, but... That's, oh, that's fair. Okay, that's right. You weren't... Okay. Um, so some of you have spent your whole life here don't understand what it is to see these things for the first time. But when you, when you come into this city for the first time, it is captivating. It's amazing. It is hard to keep your eyes on anything that isn't west, right? And it's one of the big draws of living here. And you know, you've been living here two months. You've been living here six months. You've been living here five years. And they're there, and it's beautiful, but I'm no longer captivated in the same way. Right? Now I have to get in my off-road vehicle and drive up a mountain to recapture that feeling that I had the first day. And it's funny because we have people, family come in to visit, and I want to take them to the places that are really dramatic for me, and I forget that for them just being here is enough. Right? It's going to be the same way with the practices of the faith. There are times when we're doing them and just like I was originally captivated by the mountains, when I first came to this thing, there was a life in it. There was an excitement in it. There was an energy in it. And yet the things of my life crowded out sometimes, and I don't always feel captivated in the same way. And that's why we long for the Spirit of God to come to us and to re-energize our lives. It's one of the reasons that new followers of Jesus are often so much more enthusiastic than older followers of Jesus. It's one of the reasons that sometimes there are divisions in churches among the young and the old because older followers of Jesus have become jaded or they're not as captivated by Jesus anymore. And I'm one of them. I've been following Jesus my entire life. So, you know, 38 years of following Jesus, there are things that just don't have the same meaning to me as they did, as they do to a new believer. It's one of the reasons it's so important to have new followers of Jesus around and have their enthusiasm and have their love for Jesus and have their new eyes because it will open your eyes to things that you have not experienced in a long time and to energy and to a joy that you haven't experienced in a long time. It is such a wonderful thing to experience the things of God with someone experiencing for the first time if you've been following Jesus a long time. Because all those things that you've become uncaptivated by are suddenly new and joyful. And there are times when I crest a hill and I look out to the mountains and it's like I'm seeing them for the first time. And that's what I pray for my spiritual life that I'm always seeing things from a new angle or a new vantage point or through someone else's eyes, and all of that captivating beauty is there for me again. And so I don't have like a one, two, three step process for maintaining that, um, but, but one of those ways is just to spend time with people who are new to this thing. Um, and if you don't know anybody who's new to this thing. It's all the more reason to gather here at the church with them. It's all the more reason to talk about Jesus in your daily life if you're a follower of him. Not to beat people over the head, but to talk about Jesus as though he is real and essential to your life with the people in your life. All right. Um, all right. So I've got, a, I've got a question here. It, it's got a long backstory. I'm not going to read all that. Um, so I'm sorry to the sender, um, but I'm going to get it, and then I'll hopefully communicate it well. 
Um, so this one says, um, what do you do when you're in conflict, can't seem to find resolution and come to communion? Specifically with a brother or sister in the church. And this, is, this would be easy to happen here, right? You're in conflict with somebody who's sitting across the room from you, because you'd never sit close to each other. You'd be like across the room from each other. And then when we come to the center aisle, you find yourselves like near one another in the center aisle, walking up together. And you're like, oh, man, I've got that guy, really. And so there two, there's a twofold thing that happens. One is you think, he shouldn't be taking communion because we got stuff going on. Right? And if you're really self-righteous, he shouldn't be taking communion, but I will. Right? Um, <laughs> the other thing is that you start looking inward and you realize, I've got, I've got an issue with this person and I don't have time to reconcile before communion. And maybe I can't pull them out of line. Maybe I can't, like, go some, I'll be, you know, everybody's watching. Everybody, I'm not trying to make a public spectacle of this thing. What do you do then? Um, I would say, one, if you are feeling any ambivalence about coming forward because of conflict, don't come forward. Just don't do it. Don't, don't worry about what they're doing. Don't think about what they're doing. You are responsible for your soul, not theirs. And so if you are feeling any ambivalence about conflict with another person before you come to the table, don't come to the table. Just stay back. That's your responsibility. And as you stay back, you should really be in prayer and searching your heart for any bitterness toward the other person. Because as they get closer up to the front and you're watching them and you're thinking, they really shouldn't be doing this. They really, oh, oh, they just tore the bread. Um, you need to be praying through that right then. You need to be in a place where God is washing the bitterness out of your heart so that you can come with a clean conscience next time. Um, but this one. Um, all right, I am, it is late. This happens every time we do a Q&A, which is awesome. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. Um, but it's getting later, so we're gonna wrap up here with two more questions. Um, can, should you take communion with other believers outside of church on Sunday in a small group or with a group of believing friends? Uh, different uh, leaders will have different answers for this. In some church traditions, only elders are allowed to serve communion. If you're in a very high church tradition, and when I say high church, I mean very liturgical, smells and bells kinds of stuff. Um, Catholic churches, Episcopal churches, Lutheran churches, or, or higher churches. Um, in those places, only ordained ministers are allowed to, uh, to um, uh, serve communion. And so in those places, the answer would be no. And if you're in a church and tradition, I say, be respectful of and obedient to the church tradition that you've chosen to be a part of. Right? You have a choice in the church that you're a part of. And if you choose to become a member of a church, then you're under submission to the leadership of that church. And that's your choice. You make that decision. And so wherever you've chosen to land, submit to the practice and the teaching of that church. And so if your church says only elders can serve communion, then no, unless you've got an elder presiding over your small group, right? If you're in a church tradition that says only consecrated host can be used, then no, you can't. Now here, I say, any time that a group of followers of Jesus, of, of, of Christians gather together, absolutely you can. And, and yeah, you don't need an elder. You don't need a leader to partake together. The only exception is taking alone because that's against the purpose of communion. And so if you're gathered with another group of, of believers, whether they're part of your church or not, in respect to the tradition that your friends are coming from, and you feel like you want to be led to take communion, do it. I was once, uh, I was at a uh, pastor's gathering at a, a monastery, um, a Benedictine monastery run by a bunch of awesome nuns down in Colorado Springs. And so I was there with doing a pastor's retreat with a few other pastors, and we were from all over the board. And, of course, we had um, a nun who, from the monastery who was kind of meeting with us and walking us through some stuff. And the, the most amazing thing happened. We were sitting there. We are praying together. There were only four of us in the room. And 
uh, one of the pastors says, man, I wish we could take communion together. But he's being respectful to her tradition, right? He's being respectful to the nun's tradition. We're not supposed to take communion in this monastery because we're not Catholic. And so uh, he says, man, I wish we could take communion together. And the nun says, well, why can't we? (laughs) And we're like, "Uh, because we're not supposed to? And she's like, no, we practice an open table here at this monastery. And so we wanna, if we want to take communion together as Christ's body, we can. So she goes and gets the stuff. She gets the wine. She gets the wafer. She brings it out to a table. And then she does the most amazing thing. And if you have a Catholic background, this will blow you away. She says, who wants to consecrate the host? Which is like, we're Protestants, man. Like, that's not allowed. And so my friend said, hey, Brandon says this Hebrew prayer over the stuff. Like, what, what if we do that? And I was like, okay. So I prayed, you know, um, and I pray over it. And, um, and it's consecrated the moment that I've prayed over it, according to their theology. And we partake of communion together. And it just stood out to me as the most beautiful example of us being respectful of the tradition of the place we were in and of them bending to say, no, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and being able to partake together as a sign of our unity in Jesus. It was awesome. And I think if that happens at your small group, awesome. That's great. Um, and finally, this is the last question, and this is a, this is, I end on this because it's going to take us to the gospel of Jesus. What makes one a follower of Christ? Does just showing up to church without change qualify one as a follower? What qualifies you as a follower of Jesus is that you have repented of your sin, you have turned, and you have, Jesus has become Lord of your life. He is your king, he's your master, he's your rabbi, he's the source of your life, and you now have the Holy Spirit living within you. That is what makes one a follower of Jesus. And if I'm missing any basic point, Monica, please correct me. Um, That you have repented of sin, you've turned to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you have received the Holy Spirit of God living within you. That makes you a Christian. And if you are that person, then you are a Christian. You follow that with either baptism or confirmation if you were baptized as an infant and aren't going to be rebaptized. And the baptism is your public profession of faith. Confirmation is your public profession that I accept the faith I was baptized into as a baby. And then you follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And so we have to make a distinction here between a Christian and a person who is following Jesus at any given moment. Because you can be a Christian and not following Jesus in a specific moment. Your status before God will work a change in your life and you will over time become more like Jesus. That is the rock, that's the bedrock of what the Christian faith is for individuals. It is to become more like Jesus in every way. The Apostle Paul says that we were saved, we were predestined in order to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We become followers of Jesus so that we become like Jesus. And our status before God is secure through the body and blood of Jesus that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. However, you will not faithfully follow Jesus in every moment of your life. Not every follower of Jesus or Christian will always follow Jesus. The goal is to get to a place where I am consistently following Jesus in every decision that I make. But there's a process called sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. And in that process of sanctification, I will fail. And I will not always follow Jesus. And so there will be many times when we can look at somebody and say, man, you are not following Jesus right now. And there are many times we can reflect on our own lives and be like, I was not following Jesus. 
Oh, I'm still a Christian. You're still a Christian. Your, your status before God is secure through Jesus Christ, not through your actions. But in that moment, I was not following Jesus. And this is why the Christian life is a life of repentance. This is why repentance is not a one-time deal where we repented of sin and now we're a follower of Jesus and we never have to repent again. This is why repentance is the life of the Christian. It is to mark all of our lives because our entire life is about learning to turn away from the things of the world and to Jesus in every situation, with every decision, in every relationship. That's what following Jesus is. And so there'd be a point in my life where you might say to me, if, you, if we were in close relationship, let's say you were my pastor, and we were in close relationship, and we've, been no, we've known each other for 35 years, and you say, Brandon, um, brother, I noticed you weren't following Jesus in that moment. And over 35 years, I've noticed that when that time comes up, you are never following Jesus. We're not seeing the fruit of repentance in this area of your life. And as my brother and as my pastor, you would have every right to call me aside and speak into my life and say, Brandon, I know you're a Christian, but in this particular area, I've noticed there's been no change in the decades that I have known you. And a mature Brandon, a mature follower of Jesus would say, oh my God, thank you for shining light in that place. Because God uses his people to sanctify us as much as he uses anything else. That's why we're in community together. So a follower of Jesus is one who has repented of sin, is following Jesus, has been filled with God's Holy Spirit, and lives a life of repentance trying to turn to Jesus. A follower of Jesus is not a person who perfectly lives without sin because we can't do it. We constantly need the blood of Jesus, which brings us back to the table. That's why we come to the table. You and I need the blood of Jesus every moment of our lives, every single day in every situation. I need the broken body and shed blood of my Lord to make me like him and I cannot live a life of repentance with my eyes turned toward Jesus unless I partake of the body and blood of Jesus, unless my heart and my mind and my body is, is turned toward him and I'm consistently and constantly reminded what Jesus has done for me. That's why this table is so vital. And that's why we will continue to practice this weekly no matter what else happens to our Sunday service when we make changes. This will always be a weekly practice. If for no other reason than as your pastors, Mindy and I desperately need it to stay rooted. And if we need it, we know you need it too. Just as Jesus has told us. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.